Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area between Baltimore and Bel Air, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. Come join us on a Sunday. Our service info is at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. I'd like to turn your attention to Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Who would have thunk it? Two weeks ago we did one verse, last week we did one verse, today we're going to finish the chapter. So, uh, And this is not a ruse, this is scout's honor. I wasn't a scout, so. <laughs> Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Awesome. Every time I read that, I go, yes! And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she has been nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now, verses 1 through 6 seems to have already happened. Thank you. <laughs> You know, it's funny, I thought that was going to happen, but here we go. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 seems to have already happened. Verses 7 through 12 are in, uh, seem to have already happened, uh, may not have happened category. We don't know when the the timing of this is. Personally, I believe this war in heaven has already happened, but it may not be the case. And now today we are diving into uh, section 3. Uh, verses 13 through 17. And these events pretty clearly seem to uh, not have happened yet. So today we're dealing with future prophecy. Now before we dive in, I want to give you a, a broad picture of what I believe to be happening in verses 13 through 17. Uh, I believe this to be happening halfway through the Great Tribulation. And for those of you that may not know what that means... There is a theme in the Bible that talks about a seven-year period just before the return of the Lord 
that is really rough. <laughs> a lot of bad things happen in that time. And three and a half years through that seven-year period, so dead smack in the middle, uh, there is a great increase in persecution. Uh, so uh, I believe that this is happening right at that three and a half year mark. Satan is going to turn against the Jewish people, but specifically, and this is a very important distinction, the, the, the Jewish people who have come to a faith in Jesus Christ. And when Satan turns against the Jewish Christians, and this event is described in Matthew 24, but when Satan turns on these people, they will then, they are instructed to, but they will then flee into the wilderness, into the hills, into the mountain, and Satan is going to pursue them. But like the story of Jesus and Mary and Joseph, God will intervene and foil Satan's plans yet again. And Satan then furious will stop pursuing believing Israel and because God is protecting them. And Satan will shift his wrath on persecuting the believing Gentiles, the, the Gentile church. Uh, so that's where I'm at. That's where I think we're going. And that's what we're going to read today. Uh, so verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Satan, the dragon, he failed in killing Jesus and conquering Jesus. He failed at conquering this child to be born. And then he decided to make war in heaven. And how did he do there? <laughs> he failed in heaven. And now he pursues a new evil, like Pharaoh, who sought to kill the Hebrew children and then failed. And then he tried to crush them under slavery and failed. And then he tried to resist the ten plagues and couldn't. And then finally he pursues them to the Red Sea. It's failure after failure after failure. And as, after, as chapter 12 has been progressing, God has been describing the character of the dragon to us. God is been showing us how Satan operates. And this is a theme through the whole Bible, and it's emphasized here in chapter 12. God is showing us that when Satan's plans are thwarted, he doesn't just stop his evil and then mope around and, oh, I didn't get him today. <laughs> Feel down on himself and eat a pint of ice cream and watch, you know, old reruns of something. He is relentlessly evil. He is insatiably malicious. Practically, this tells us that when he tries to kill your faith, when Satan is pursuing you, when he tries to kill something in your life, he doesn't just stop if he fails. <laughs> he will try to kill your faith through your marriage. And if he fails, he will then try through your kids. And if that fails, he'll try through your work. And if that fails, he'll try through your friends group. He'll try every conceivable angle that he possibly can to destroy you. Think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Didn't, you, didn't Satan try hunger? He, he tried bad theology. <laughs> he tried bribery. He tried doubt. Remember, he said, if you are the son of God, over and over and over again. This is what Satan does. God is informing the church here today in chapter 12 and, and over and over and over again that Satan re 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 restlessly pursues us to destroy our faith, to destroy our witness, to destroy our bodies, or to destroy whatever he can. He's a destroyer. He's relentlessly evil. 
And this is one of the reasons why Satan being kicked out of heaven is so beautiful. Because in, cha- because in a chapter that is describing the relentless pursuit of the dragon to destroy God's people, we are told that there is a place that he cannot pursue us. And that is in heaven. Our whole life is one of pursuit, isn't it? Don't you feel like Satan's been nipping at your heels since you were born? But there's going to come a time where the pursuit has to stop. Remember when Pharaoh was pursuing the Israelites and then that Red Sea closed? Do we ever read of the Egyptians chasing them again? There's a reason for that. Because there was no room for Pharaoh in that wilderness. Well, God's going to make sure that Satan cannot pursue us in heaven because there is no more place for him in heaven. Praise God. Now, already we see a theme unfolding in this passage. Satan first thought to kill Jesus and lost. Then Satan made war in heaven against the angels and lost. And now is pursuing the woman. (laughs) How do you think that's going to go? He's going to lose. Finally, this section ends with him becoming so angry, he then starts pursuing the woman's children. And so structurally, chapter 12 opens with him pursuing a child and closes with him pursuing children. And then there's something else now we need to know about our enemy. When Satan wants to destroy your family, he will attack it from top to bottom. He will attack it in every conceivable, from every conceivable angle. And there is nothing off limits to him. There is nothing too low for him. He has no shame. So, so he, he, is, he is so evil. I forget where it is in the scriptures, but it's coming to my mind now that Jesus came to undo the works of the devil, it says. And then if you ever read the Old Testament, um, you'll see these things called generational sins. You see that a lot in the Old Testament. Now, I don't believe in generational curses. Jesus became a curse to kill the curse in the life of the believer. If you're saved and have the Holy Spirit, you don't have curses. Praise God, right? Um, because holiness and uncleanliness can't dwell together. Darkness can't dwell with light. So anyways, but you see in the Old Testament that there would be the sins upon the parents and then the kids and then the grandparents and then the great-grandparents. And, and this is very informative to our demonology, to how Satan works. If he tries the temptation that works on you, he's gonna, he delights to try it on your children. And he's so going to try it on your children's children. That's why when you see when someone comes from a family of addicts, they so often struggle. Because Satan goes, ooh, that works. <laughs> Let's try it again. And you'll see these patterns of unbroken sin through generations. But when the Holy Spirit has entered into you, you have the power to break that cycle. He who rose Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in you. You think, to say you can't overcome something that's taken your family for generations is to claim that the power of God is not enough. Impossible. The Holy Spirit and God's word breaks these things in us. We must conform to him. We must be conformed into the image of his son. And this is what thwarts Satan's plans. Not by trying to muscle Satan yourself, but by letting God do it for you. (laughs) And he can and will break it. And when God gets involved, Satan's plans fail. And he gets mad, and so he'll try a new angle. Just think because you have one victory over sin doesn't mean there aren't ten more waiting to come by. You ever think, you ever have a mountaintop experience and go, oh, me and Moses. And then you'll get cut off in traffic and every bad word you know comes out. Or something stupid. 
This is how it works. We must be in a constant state of surrendering to God. Now, verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she, where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So Satan wants to kill the woman. Again, I believe this to be Messianic Israel. And she is supernaturally given the wings of an eagle and flies into the wilderness. Isn't that a Lenny Kravitz song? I want to fly like an eagle. I I just hit me for the first time here. Uh, We're all learning together. Uh, In Exodus 19.3, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you remember, the guide to the Jewish people in the wilderness was who? The Holy Spirit. It was the, it was, the Spirit was the glory cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and it led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness and in the wilderness. Now, as we connect Exodus and Revelation 12, it seems plain to me that the wings that the woman, uh, that, that helped the woman flee into the wilderness is the same Holy Spirit that helped the Israelites in the Exodus flee into the wilderness. And this shouldn't be much of a jump to us because the Holy Spirit is introduced to us in Genesis as what? As a dove who flies and flutters over the surface of the deep. Or how about when Jesus gets baptized? A two-winged dove descends on Jesus and leads him into the wilderness. So Revelation 12, the Holy Spirit leads Israel into the wilderness. Again, I think this is pointing to a revival in the Messianic people in the end times. Uh, So Revelation 12, the Holy Spirit leads the Israelites into the wilderness like the book of Exodus, which God says were as eagles' wings. So here I believe God is going to do the same thing again. And it's no coincidence that the same word for Satan's pursuing in verse 13 in the Greek is dioko. It's the same word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, in Exodus 14 verses 8 and 9 that speaks of Pharaoh's pursuit of the Israelites into the wilderness. So as Pharaoh kept, when you read the Exodus and Pharaoh keeps getting failure after failure, this is a picture of Satan in the last days. He's going to keep rising up against God's plans and it's going to be a foil after foil after foil. Uh, let's, uh, now, when this persecution, when this time comes, the serpent is going to rear up and devour these Christian Israelites. But at the same moment, God will lead them by the Spirit to flee into the wilderness. And do you remember that that section in Matthew 24? He says, when the time comes, don't even go back into your house to grab your coat. Don't even, don't even pick up a backpack, whatever. Don't even put on your shoes. Just run. Run as fast as you can, as far as you can, into the hills, into the wilderness, into the, into the mountains. This is what this is describing. That at a moment, Satan is going to turn on these people and they must flee as fast as they can. Now, verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. As the serpent starts slaying those in Jerusalem, he then pursues those running into the wilderness. Now, 
We have no idea what this water means. <laughs> How's he shooting water out of his mouth? What does this water symbolize? Uh, people really have no idea what this means. Um, however, notice all through chapter 12, Satan has been called a dragon six times thus far. And when he's cast out of heaven, he's called the devil, the accuser. That makes sense because the accuser can no longer accuse. But now it switches to the serpent. And there's a reason for that, and I think we're supposed to notice things like that. Maybe this name serpent is likening Satan to Pharaoh, because remember, Pharaoh had a picture of a snake on his headdress. And when Pharaohs would ride out to war, they would wear a blue headdress with a, with a serpent. Um, so, so maybe this is a reference to Pharaoh. Certainly there's enough connections there. But, but to me, I, I think this is more describing his character. That the serpent was the one who deceived the woman in the garden, And now the serpent is pursuing to kill the woman again. Do you see that? And note, in the garden, what was the serpent's weapon in the garden? It was his mouth. What's the serpent's weapon here in the wilderness? It's his mouth. He pours forth this water from his mouth. So I take this to mean Satan, through the Antichrist, will use his mouth to stir up a people, probably an army, to attack against the fleeing believers, to kill the believers. Let's see how that plan goes, huh? Verse 16. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Isn't that great? Satan throws a bunch of water at the woman and then the earth opens up its mouth and swallows the river. Uh, well, if, if what I'm, if what I believe is correct, isn't that exactly almost what happened to the, Pharaoh's army? In the Exodus, he pursued them on land and God said, nah, I don't think so. And well, I think they're going to get consumed all over again. Uh, And then fascinating, uh, verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman. This is a theme throughout this uh, chapter 12. It's great. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So he's furious with the woman. But then you notice he doesn't continue to try to pursue her. He stops the pursuit uh, and then goes after her children. Now, who are her children? Uh, It says, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. We'll get into that in a few weeks. The children here seem to be the Gentiles. He is pursuing uh, the woman who was a picture of faithful Israel. And when God says no, he says, okay, I'll keep persecuting the church in uh, all over the world. That's today's text, two thoughts. I, I really kept thinking, God, what in the world <laughs> do you want me to talk about when I'm talking about people throwing up water and swallowing throw up water and people are running and there's a woman and kids? <laughs> like, what do you want me to do with this, God? I want you to see immediately that following the victory in heaven, earth is in chaos. Can't we read of Jesus' victory on the cross and hear about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father? And we can have hope that Jesus is going to return today. We really believe it. And sometimes... We're down here on earth and we hear about all these glorious victories that God has wrought and all we can feel is the dragon's breath breathing down our neck. 
He's causing so much grief. And this is what we see in today's text. Heaven is victorious in defeating the dragon, but it takes a long time to feel that down here on earth. Sometimes it takes a long time to see that down here on earth. Loved ones, you ever just go, you ever have a season where you're just going through it? It's just bad news after bad news, health problem after health problem, bad mood after bad mood. You know, we could all enter into these really tough seasons. Seasons to where it's really difficult to feel like Jesus is victorious. Because we're tired. Because we're sick. Because we're going through it. Because we're being pursued by the evil one. Those people aren't running into the wilderness, sweating bullets, going, Jesus won. You know, they're being pursued. And it can be challenging to feel victorious when we're being crushed. But please understand that Satan's multitudinous attacks upon your life may feel as if we are being defeated, but this is not so. The reality is God's mercies are new every day. Every day God shows up for his people. Every day Satan seeks to do us to do the church harm. And every day, godly men and women are stepping into eternity as God's beloved sons and daughters. Satan's plans are foiled every day when thousands of us enter into glory. Every day. And we have to understand that as much as Satan's attacks look like he's winning, by the grace of God, he's not. Satan for 2,000 years has been losing battle after battle after battle. And though we may not feel like Paul in Romans 8.37 who says, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You ever read that verse sometimes and go, God, I don't feel like I'm a conqueror right now. But we have to know that Satan is a defeated foe. And there may be skirmishes here and there, but at the cross of Christ, he lost the war. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, Satan may be able to hurt you. He may be able to bring temptation to mar your witness, but he cannot take your soul because it belongs to another. And his name is Jesus Christ. No matter what Satan does to you, even if he crushes your body, even if he drags you to court, he is a defeated foe because he can't have what he really wants. And what does he really want? Your soul. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, it belongs to another. And there's no room for him in heaven to dispute it. And the reason he can't have your soul is because Jesus already defeated him for it. He already claimed him. For it. And so though we feel like we are on the run sometimes, and you know what? Sometimes we are on the run. Sometimes we feel like I can't do one more thing, but to just exist. And sometimes barely that's happening. But we have to understand all of Satan's wrath is coming from a place of impending destruction. We can be so tempted, can't we, to look at our country falling apart? Think, uh uh-oh. Satan's turning the tide of battle. He's winning. Can we look at the great evils of our generation and start to lose confidence in Christ's victory? But we can't. (laughs) 
Satan is pouring his wrath out here on earth because this is all he has left. He's the dying leader of a dying kingdom. And the greatest battles, the greatest victories have already been fought and won. When Jesus said, it is finished, do you know what that means? Satan's done. When Jesus said, it is finished, he says, sin is done. All who believe in me will not perish. Underline, highlight, bold. Will not perish, but have everlasting Life. When Jesus said it is finished and he died on that cross, he was victorious over death. And what happened three days later? Busted out of that tomb. And as Jesus rose, what do you think we're going to do? We're going to rise. Because Jesus won the battle of our resurrection. We're not... God's not waiting for us to reach some standard of perfect morality before he goes, ah, now they're getting to heaven. Sure. You think you're ever going to get there if that was true? It's all Christ. It's all about what he's done. He is the one who foils the evil one. He is the one who ceases all evil. He's the one who conquers the dragon corporately and privately. He was not... When God had the scroll and said, Who is worthy? Who was the one found worthy? It was the Lamb. It said, I looked in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Satan's part of that, you know. He was not worthy to take the title deed of of the earth. But Christ was. And so when we look at our world falling apart, he does not have dominion here. This is not his world. Jesus is the one who rules all the nations. The child to be born was victorious on the cross. He was found worthy to rule and reign in the cosmos forever. And so we must not wrap our fears around Satan's wrath, but our hope into Jesus' victories. And what God does sometimes, as we see in Revelation 12, takes a while for us to feel it. Heaven just sang that God won, and now we look on earth and people are dying and running and fleeing. It takes time. But rest assured, God has won and Satan is defeated. And the greatest battle in my life and the greatest battle in your life has already been finished in the blood of Jesus Christ. What does the scripture say? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let that dragon pursue all day long. He can't get what he can't have. (laughs) Now, secondly, in verse 14 we read, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for time and times and half a time. Isn't it interesting that the woman is given two wings and then she is nourished? We would be doing ourselves a great disservice if we did not acknowledge God's provision to his people in really bad situations. As far as end times go, whatever and whenever these Christian Israelites end up in the wilderness, we have to see that God is going to take care of them. When God flooded the world, what did he prepare? An ark. (laughs) And when these people have to flee from the wrath of the evil one, God will prepare something for them. And when God rose, drove the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness, he literally made it rain food from heaven. (laughs) 
God prepares for his people. He will take care of them. Again, drawing from the Exodus themes here on the flight from Pharaoh, these Israelites will have a supernatural provision provided for them as the Israelites in the wilderness were nourished again from the manna in the Exodus. Now, I wrote this out and I couldn't help it. I was reminded of one of my most favorite stories in all of the scripture and it's a really bizarre portion Uh, But I want to read it to you because it's the Lord's Day and I'm excited. It's from 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of of Tishbite of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith which is the east, is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Isn't that awesome? So he, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook of Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Isn't that awesome? I wish God had animals bring me meat. Morning and night. Just a stork brings me a steak every day. I'm just putting that out there if he's listening, you know. As Elijah is in the wilderness, God literally sent ravens with beaks full of meat and bread to nourish Elijah. Understand, like the Israelites in the Exodus, there's a long history of God taking care of his people in really desperate situations. Do you think God gave us these stories so we can go, wow, God used to do miracles? Or do we have the same God today? Of course we do. So like Joseph in the grain, how he prepared grain for the nations, like David in En Gedi, like Abraham and Jacob with the wells, God has shown us so many times in the scriptures that God occasionally sends people into dry places. He allows us into dry places. But when he does that, he provides for his people. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You notice following the good shepherd means we go through valleys. It's part of it. And in the Aramaic, that, the valley of darkness means deeper darkness. It's not, I'm not in a bad place. I'm in a bad, bad place is what that means. So along the same vein as our first point, if you find yourself in a dry season, you find yourself in the wilderness, an emotional, spiritual wilderness. I was reading Psalm 51 this morning. David was just so distraught from his sin. He said, God, open my lips. He was so wiped out, he couldn't even move his lips to praise God. He's like, you're going to have to move my mouth. And if you move my mouth, I'll be able to praise you. If you find yourself in a place to God, you have to do this because I have nothing left. I have nothing to offer but my hope that you fix this. First, I would like to encourage you to trust the promises of God. That was our first point. But what we also see in today's passage is that believers have more than hope. We have more than good feelings and good vibrations, right? God is also a God who provides. 
He provides for his people. If if you are emotionally or spiritually in a bad place right now, if you feel like you're in a spiritual desert with no water, of course there's a possibility. We don't want to make self-martyrs out of ourselves now, do we either? Because there's a possibility you put yourself there through a lot of really bad choices. There's a possibility maybe if you get drunk every night of the week, you're going to end up with no money and your family's going to leave you. You know, there, there are sins that drive us into the wilderness. But that's not always the case. Sometimes the righteous are in flight. Sometimes God takes his people like Job into seasons to where they have nothing left within themselves. In some ways, like Matthew 4, Uh, not so that he may punish them, but so that God may nourish them or grow them. Think about it. When when Moses killed the Egyptian guard, he fled into Midian. Wasn't it there that God schooled him and made him the meekest man who ever lived? It was when Saul pursued David into the wilderness. It is there that God schooled him and made him a man after his own heart. And then he brought him He helped him write all those psalms in the wilderness. And then God, you notice Saul and all his armies are looking for David. And then it says that thousands of people were finding David in the cave. So everyone could find David but Saul. And it said it was all disgruntled, angry people with faces like lions. And it was there that God raised up an army around them. And they became his men of renown, his mighty men of valor. It is in the wilderness when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. It is in the wilderness where Jesus feeds the 5,000 because he was afraid they would faint along the way. What I can tell you is if Satan has chased you into the wilderness or he has backed you into some corner or has put you into some survival mode, please understand, like today's text, that God so often provides for his people who are chased into the wilderness. And he allows them to be chased into these wildernesses for the beautiful purpose so that he may meet with them and he may nourish them there. And he may give them a new education there. You know, it's a very secular thought to think the problem of mankind is is not enough education. Often the greatest problem of mankind is we have too much education. The wrong education. Sometimes God has to strip us of all of our confidence and everything we thought we knew so that we may stand before him naked and empty. And he goes, good, now I can fill you up with the right stuff. Yes, the godly are being pursued in today's passage. And God is allowing it to bring them into the wilderness so that he may take care of them and nourish them. So I, again, I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in a spiritual dry time, you're worn out, you're beat up, I want to encourage you, when you get in the wilderness, to sit down with the Lord. Just sit with him. If you feel you've been in a place and driven, you woke up dry. <laughs> Don't be like Lot's wife, who looked back at all the things she lost. She couldn't, she couldn't concentrate on God leading them into something better. All she could think about was her curtains that were about to catch fire in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Don't look back on the things God has driven you out of because, you know, he's leading you to something far greater. Be still and know that he is God. If God allows you to be driven into the wilderness, it's not necessarily that you're being punished. Don't you feel that way? God, what did I do? How am I not at peace? What did I do wrong? Was it that sin I did 15 years ago? Was it this thing? Is it my guilt? Is it my grief? Is it my shame? What did I do? Tell me, tell me, tell me. (laughs) But sometimes it's that God says, you know what, I do want to comfort you. Come to me. (laughs) And he drives you to a place to where all you have left is him. And there is no better place to be. God may love you so much that he may be removing all of your distractions and all of the fluff and all your joys of sin, praise God, and all your satisfaction of fleeting things because he wants to give you something more. Your pursuit into the wilderness might just be answered prayer. Time with him. A time of unique nourishing and schooling. Now, understand because there's a, there's a corporate element here. We have the church. God has placed us in a church. We are many members of one body. So there's a sense that we should never truly be alone because Jesus died so that we can be part of a group of people. But isn't there also a sense that we still, even though we have people we can call and people we trust and people that love us, isn't it still true that sometimes we still feel alone? <laughs> Our head hits the pillow, and we have a thousand people we could call and laugh with, but it's just us and the Lord some days. And so please hear me. What Satan intends for evil, God will use it for good. What Satan intends for evil, God will use it for good. If Satan is pursuing you and chasing you into the wilderness, Or maybe you've just placed yourself in a really horrific headspace or in a spiritual state. Please know that the same God who met with man in the garden is the same God who meets with man in the desert. And often it is in the desert where he chooses to meet with his people. So if you find yourself again last time in a really bad place, then I would recommend you sit down and know that he is God. And let him reteach you the things you need to learn and instruct you in the way that he needs you to be instructed. Don't tell God how he needs to be God in your life. (laughs) That's you trying to be God. Let him be God. And open your hands and say thank you. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your truth. For the last two days, me and my kids have been singing, glory, glory, hallelujah. (laughs) His truth goes marching on. God, we thank you that your truth is fresh and new in every generation. We thank you that what Satan has meant for evil, you meant for good. We thank you that for all of his schemes and all of his evil and all of his ill intent, God, that you take these things and you drive them to a place, God, to where we have nothing left but you. And God, there is no better place left to be. God, with with you, through the valleys, goodness and mercy follow us.
all the days of our life. And you are leading us to the house of the Lord forever. We pray for those in here who are struggling and wounded and worn out and dried up. That you would meet with them this week. That you would meet with them this day, this hour. Nourish your people. You have prepared a special nourishing for your people. God, we ask that you would make that manifest this, this day. And God, we pray for those of us that are maybe too full up <laughs> to receive anything, God. We, we pray that you would empty us as peaceably as possible. God, we, we ask that we may be your people who look like your people, who act like your people, who speak like your people, who love like your people. And may when we, our lives are said and done, May we all hear those most glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, our Lord and our King. Be with us now. God, we pray if anyone needs prayer, that they may go and speak, pray with our prayer team off to the side. God, we pray for those who could not make it today, that you may encourage them to assemble as your people. So often the desert feels like a place where one needs to be alone, God, but you have given us your people and your spirit. And it says where two or more are gathered, you are gathered amongst them. You are in church. (laughs) Let them gather to you, God. Please be with us, God. Be with your people. Pour your spirit out upon us in a fresh new way, God. Pour water upon a thirsty ground. We ask and pray and beg for revival now. And in Jesus' name, all who agreed said, amen. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary, Baltimore. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary, Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. If you can't be here in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word, to live the Word, to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon.